You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We're joined today by Tom Orderman Jr., an American risk management specialist and 2013 graduate with distinction of the University of Aberdeen's Master of Science program in Strategic Studies. In addition to having held positions in training and risk management in support of several U.S. government agencies, he spent 16 months forward deployed as an anti-terrorism advisor in Kuwait. He has expert knowledge and joint training experience in counter-IED, irregular guerrilla hybrid warfare, COIN, civil and public affairs, and he is a seasoned OSINT GPS data OS GEOINT fusion practitioner. <laughs> Say that five times fast. Thank you, Tom, for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here, Vince. So I stopped a little before what you're doing now, uh, a little bit beyond what I said in your bio. You're working in the cybersecurity field now. Uh, that's correct. Um, basically kind of doing the uh, the NIST uh, risk management framework, uh, using that to just kind of evaluate uh, the security status and, and posture of uh, different uh, information systems. So you've done real-world counterterrorism and security risk management, meaning people shooting us, blowing us up right, on the ground, right. and now you've moved into cyberspace to do some of the same things. Yeah, kind of. That's uh, probably a good way to put it. So you're, you're a local, and we talked a couple of weeks ago at an event at the museum, and one of the big reasons I wanted to bring you on SpyCast was your expertise on a topic that I know very little about, and, and that's not easy for me to admit openly. <laughs> Uh, and that's the Dofar Rebellion, which is often called the Secret War because so few, people, so few people know about it. This to give you a little background, listeners, it took place between 62 and 76, that's 1962 and 1976, when British and Omani forces fought what began as a localized insurgency, but later would grow and be co-opted and escalated by Cold War uh, tensions, communist guerrillas, bringing in some of the broader Cold War nonsense that was happening in the 60s and 70s. And so this is a very cool topic, very wonky topic for me as a historian. <laughs> but I think I got to ask the question that I'm sure is on the mind of many of the listeners. Why should we care about a tiny insurgency no one's ever heard about in Oman? I actually get that question from my fiance all the time. <laughs> uh, so there's two overarching reasons to, to care about the Dofar Rebellion. The first reason is that 
Uh, a lot of the countries that are in the news today were very intimately involved in one sense or another with the conflict. You don't hear a lot about Oman in the news, uh, partly because of the way that the war turned out, but you hear about places like Yemen, which was you know very intimately, very intimately involved in the conflict. Uh, you hear about places like Iran. So, for example, one of the concerns about you know whether Dofar was going to go communist or or stay within the sphere of the Sultan's influence was that Oman actually, if you look, if you really zoom in on Google Maps, uh, you'll see that the south side of the Strait of Hormuz, Oman owns that land. Uh, so there, you know, back in the early '70s. Uh, the Shah of Iran was still in power, and so there was, you know, this concern of, well, we don't want to lose that side of the Strait of Hormuz to the communists. Well, you know, in subsequent years, we lost the Strait of Hormuz to uh, the regime that's currently in Tehran. So had we lost, you know, both sides, so to speak, and it's not our territory, right. but, you know, lost uh, friendly regimes on both sides, that could have been very problematic. Uh, the war set Oman up as a mediator between Iran and the West. So when you see things about uh, the nuclear negotiations between uh, Iran and, and Western countries, or if you see that an Iranian was released by the West or a Westerner was released by the Iranians, usually Oman is the, is the uh, intermediary in those conflicts. Um, the war set Oman up as a stable country that we don't hear about in terms of, you know, the Arab Spring and that kind of thing. Well, I mean, I think just to interrupt you. I mean, not reading about Oman in the news is usually a good thing. Yeah, I mean, this right? is a, we're not re yeah. reading about people in the streets or terrorism happening there or failed states or anything else. Exactly, which is very you know out of out of character for uh, for that region in general. Um, you know, and then you've also got you look at the uh, the status of Yemen. And um, and Yemen is you know not in a fantastic situation, and so there was a very real threat that that instability that you saw during the Cold War in Yemen was going to spill over. Uh, the second overarching reason is that it's a fantastic case study in counterinsurgency done right, because um, you know you you look at the conflicts that we've had in Afghanistan and Iraq that we currently have in you know iraq and syria and you know other places around the globe and you know there's sort of a an ongoing debate whether uh low intensity operations are going to continue to be the norm i'm you know i'm of the mind that we need to be prepared for both low intensity operations and you know more conventional conflicts but you know really i think history is showing us that we need to expect that the low intensity stuff is going to be the norm for the time being. So it really behooves us to kind of look at this case study and other case studies in counterinsurgency done right and say, okay, what lessons can we learn, you know, as far as this goes? I mean, you talk about counterinsurgency done right and in coin theory, which is counterinsurgency theory, has a pretty poor reputation, mainly because of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. But you argue, you wrote an article for Small Wars Journal, and you argue that's not necessarily a fair assessment that even taking those two wars into account, we really can't we can't correctly assess the you know the the, the fundamental goodness, for lack of a better <laughs> term, of coin theory based on those two operations. 
uh, yeah, that's that's kind of the position that I take. And you know, it's there's a lot of uh, sort of um, you know, I won't say it as egos, but there's a lot of skin in the game with a lot of people as far as you know answering this question whether or not coin you know, can be successful. And uh, what I argue in that particular paper is that you have classical coin theory, which, you know, we can talk in a second about some of the the issues with that. And then you have the doctrine that was handed down in 2006, 2007 by the Army and the Marine Corps, which I argue doesn't actually reflect a lot of the, the great lessons of, you know, classical coin theory in some of those case studies. And then you have what we actually did in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, you know, I'm not necessarily taking pot shots at any of that. I'm just saying, you know, in, in the paper that there are disconnects between those three things. So I'm not sure that, you know, that's a fair assessment that we actually seriously, you know, tried coin theory. Interestingly enough, they somebody picked up that same argument and ran with it on uh, this season of the Serial po- uh, Podcast when they were discussing uh Bogue Bergdahl and and you know how coin theory influenced that whole um situation in Afghanistan. Well, a lot of people may think coin theory began with David Petraeus and writing a counterinsurgency yeah. man. I mean, this goes back to the 19th century and the colonial period where the British and others, the British were the preeminent one that were trying to take insurgencies down throughout their empire. I mean, this this is where this real foundation of this theory began yeah and that's you know that's a totally legitimate criticism and and i don't dispute that at all and um you know some of the characters we're talking about are like c.e Caldwell and uh i think it's robert trinkier and you know you had these conflicts starting in sort of the late 1800s and going up kind of through the dofar rebellion was the last one that i know of other than maybe like the rhodesian conflict in the southern part of africa during the 70s and 80s um, and it's absolutely legitimate uh, criticism that a lot of the theory that came out of those uh, conflicts may not be relevant to today. So l- let's push back into the Dofar Rebellion specifically. And, and I think you, you mentioned this earlier and you pointed out that, yes, this is a small little uh, rebellion or insurgency in Oman, but it's really broader, too, than just a regional fight. There's a lot of foreign involvement. You already mentioned like Iran, but you have... On each side, the usual suspects of the Cold War lining up behind these two fighting groups. The the insurgents themselves is the Adu 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 uh, the Adu the Adu. Yeah, uh, they got clandestine training and logistical and advisory support from the Chinese, the Soviets, Iraq, Libya, the, the Cubans, PLO, the Cubans. They train in Peking. They trade in Iraq. And then, of course, on the side of the British Nimanis, you've got the other usual suspects, everyone from Jordan and Kuwait and Saudi Arabia. Um, well, and interestingly, Kuwait and Saudi Arabia started off on the side of the rebels because uh, Saudi Arabia in particular had had some disputes with the previous sultan. So there was some friction there. And then eventually, because Iran got involved, you had the Saudis really uh, pressuring Oman to kick the Iranians out and, oh, we'll do all these things for you to help you end the rebellion if you just, you know, get rid of Iran. And So not only do you have the broad Cold War atmosphere there, but you also have the regional Middle Eastern interstruggles. Yeah. And so I, 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 you know, when I started researching this, I, I had to agree that this is actually a really interesting case study that takes it much broader from the sense of just something really regional in the area. Um, what makes it interesting for us here is that 
not only were, were the heavy lifters in the insurgent counterinsurgency special operations forces, but also intelligence. So let's start with special operations forces. Because really the, the main actors when it comes to the fighting of the insurgency from the British, a concern is the SAS, is British special forces. See, I would disagree with okay. that. What I, the way I would characterize it is they played a critical role. Uh, interestingly enough, they only ever had, there were a couple of times when they were doing like turnovers where they would have more than one squadron of the SAS in the country. Uh, but really their role was, was very small and very uh, precise and surgical. Their role was to recruit um, defectors, essentially, from the ranks of the Adu and turn them into sort of a popular militia to fight for the Sultan. Um, they also they had a five-point plan uh, that included a veterinary program and a medical program and information operations. So they were doing a lot of these things that weren't really fighting. Meanwhile, you had the Sultan's armed forces that were... Um, you know, staffed, the officer ranks were staffed primarily by uh, Commonwealth and Anglophone expatriates, either working directly for the Ministry of Defense, you know, on secondment, although there were, were plenty of guys that were literally contracted by the Sultan directly as mercenaries. So they were doing kind of, you know, I, I would hesitate to say the heavy lifting because it was a good, um, you know, combined arms effort. But they were the ones out there occupying positions and patrolling and that kind of thing. But by being able to co-opt the guys from the ADU, the, the SAS did play this critical role. Um, so not not the heavy lifting right. so much, but a very surgical and very uh, critical part of the campaign. You talk about information operations. I thought it was very interesting, the idea that... Um, this was something they, they highly emphasized, the idea of leaflets and posters, broadcast radio programs, Yeah, where, I mean, this is Oman, so it's not like there's a radio in every house. So a lot of what they had to do was get the radios out there yeah. for yeah. the propaganda to work. So it's almost a two-stage, give the people the means to listen to the propaganda right. and then feed them the propaganda afterwards. And there were several different, yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And there were several different things that they, they did along those lines. Like, Initially, they got these. It was ironic because the Chinese were giving assistance to the rebels, and yet the Sultan and his forces were buying these cheap radios from the Chinese. <laughs> and initially, they were giving them out for free, and then they thought, well, we're doing this wrong. We'll heavily subsidize them, but we'll make the, the locals pay for these radios. And that way, if the Adu come and try to steal the radios away from them, then they're further alienating themselves from the local yeah, populace. Yeah, you wrote that brilliant forethought. Yeah. The idea is, you know, the only repercussions, the only countermeasures that the Adu could possibly have is to destroy or steal these radios. Yeah. But if you give the populace kind of a, a dog in the fight, if you make them give up some of their hard-earned money for this, that will actually alienate them against yeah. the rebels. It's a brilliant idea. I mean, can we... Well, this might be a weighted <laughs> question. might be one you can't answer. Can we? Can we prove forethought there? Or is that one of these happy accidents that they say, yeah, we thought of that all the time. So the source that I read suggests that there was forethought, particularly because they initially gave them away and okay. then, you know, backtracked and said, well, you know, now that we've gotten a few into the, into the local populace, let's, let's charge for them. So I think there was some forethought there. Uh, you know, the programming also should be mentioned that um, you had the propaganda broadcast. I mean, we've heard of like, um, what was the, 
in Korea and Vietnam, they had, you know, pe- women speaking English who would come on. Right, and, yeah. I mean, yeah, you've got the going all the way back to, to World War II yeah, with Tokyo yeah. Rose and Axis Sally. Exactly. And, yeah. So, you know, you had those kinds of transmissions coming from uh, Radio Aden in what was then the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen, otherwise known South as Yemen, right? South yeah. Yemen, that's right. Um, and probably broadcast from, uh, I think the village is called Hauf, that's just on the Yemeni side of the border down on the uh, Indian Ocean. Um, so you had these very negative broadcasts to try and convince the Dofaris that everything was horrible and that they really needed to uh, you know, support the insurgency. And so there was this, uh, I think it was Corporal Lane, there was this one SAS corporal who, who uh, spearheaded this whole thing, and uh, they made sure that uh, it was, I think at that, that point it was called Radio Dofar, uh, later Radio Salala, and now it's part of j- just the Omani, you know, Radio Oman, that kind of thing. Um, they ensured that they had very positive, upbeat uh, programming that really focused on efforts by the Sultan's government to... Uh, make the lives of Dofaris better. One of the things that I cite, and there's a fantastic book uh, by Andrew Higgins called uh, With the SAS and Other Animals. Um, the radio programming included this veterinary medicine program so that you know the Dofaris could literally improve their livelihood by taking better care of their livestock, which is right. a huge part of their, their economy and their livelihood. That's an amazing segue. I was going to ask you about, <laughs> and, and, to me, an extraordinary operation. I mean, in, in the foundation of all this is winning hearts and minds, or yeah. keeping hearts and minds. Yeah. And, and, you know, and so it's a lot of things that are pulled from Americans' understanding out of the Green Beret playbook. Right? Absolutely. You're not, you're not necessarily teaching them how to fight right away. You're building latrines. You're doing medicine. Mm-hmm. You're doing all these things. In this operation um, called Jaguar in 1971, you, the the good guys, as it were, the the British and Omani forces, captured hundreds of Adu livestock during this operation, yeah. and they were gonna continue to fight. But the 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 uh, the Omani forces, actually, this was kind of the militia forces. They refused to fight until they could actually make money off this livestock. They right, actually had right. to s- sell these livestock at, at a place that was nowhere near where they were. So the British SAS and it had to have essentially a Texas style cattle drive. <laughs> Operation Taurus. Yeah, to, to keep these cattle together. I mean, this is again, these are trained killers. This is the best of the best the British have to offer. And they're cowboying yeehawing across the Omani Desert to bring these cattle yeah. to sale. I mean, this is the kind of above and beyond that's necessary in a counterinsurgency operation. Yeah, and I think you know one of the one of the great things about this campaign relative to you know other campaigns that we read about, and again, not casting aspersions on how anybody does anything now, um, but this is really what unconventional warfare was envisioned as. You get in there, you work with the populace, you build up a militia, and you know, kind of help them to do their own thing. And then, you know, the kind of direct action raids were left to the conventional forces to do. Uh, Very different from the model that we see now where special operations forces are doing primarily these kinetic direct action raids. It may be unfair to say what we will about cultural misunderstanding in Iraq and Afghanistan, certainly in the very beginning. There are a lot of problems, and you can read a whole lot about the issues of just not very high levels of anthropological understanding of the culture there. Mm-hmm. 
It well, seems. I, I think it's fair to jump in and and acknowledge the initial campaign plan in Iraq was meant to be short duration. Right. There was an expectation that there was this Iraqi expatriate community that was going to be able to go in and, and take things over. So I think that's that's worth pointing out. But and that's now that why I was hedging you, a little bit. I yeah, was saying, yeah. you know, to be fair, it's not necessarily uh, as straightforward as just saying we had no clue. There, there was certainly some catch-up to be done when, when things didn't end up going according to plan. Absolutely. And the segue I was going to make here in this case is that it seemed like the British understood the culture mm-hmm. in Oman. I think that's one of the things that really jumps out, that they, they got it mm-hmm. a lot more than perhaps other counterinsurgencies did, where you know even the, some of these posters, these propaganda posters, kind of talked about the hand of God destroying communism and, and, and talking about religion as a positive against communism. And again, the cattle drive idea is yeah. you, can, you could see potentially a commander today just being like, forget we, it. We We're can't not, do we that. Can't that's do that. not that's an ridiculous. ROE job. Right. Yeah, that's not in the ROE, right? Yeah. But, uh, it, it seems like they understood what was necessary to make this work. Yeah, I think... You know, one of the things I would point to as far as that goes is you had a very lengthy period of British engagement. The British and the Omanis um, had been, you know, had very close relations for a number of years prior to that, really stretching into centuries. And so you'd always had, you know, British military cooperation with the Sultan. Um, there's all sorts of operations that you can read about, particularly the Jebel Akhtar War, which was from basically about 1957 and 1959 and there were a handful of these SAS soldiers who had participated in that conflict who then came back as senior sergeants and senior officers and served in Dofar again so you had this long term engagement by the British military and by the British foreign office that really allowed for kind of a a retention of institutional knowledge um, that really you know, played a big role. Another thing to point out as far as that goes is that most of the personnel that were serving, the, the um, Anglophone personnel, and particularly the ones who were seconded from the British military who were on active duty, uh, they received language training, like 10 weeks of language training at, uh, I believe it was Beaconsfield, um, before they went over. You know, both Ian Gardner... Um, who's a retired Royal Marines brigadier who wrote the book In the Service of the Sultan. You know, he talks about the 10 weeks that they spent doing that language training. Even Andrew Higgins, the veterinarian, got, I think, a couple of weeks, even though his um, deployment was sort of spur of the moment. So that plays a huge role in, in these operations to actually be able to not only communicate with the local populace, but also kind of understand some of the background of, of their culture. Let me ask you about the role that intelligence played in the overall operation. Okay. We are a spy we museum. We are a spy museum. Um, let me start, let me break it down. Let's talk about IMINT. Imagery intelligence, this is the 1960s and 70s. This is when the British and the Americans and, and both sides in the Cold War are starting to use imagery intelligence, whether it's spy planes or satellites, uh, as a predominant intelligence collection mm-hmm. platform, especially the West. How how big of a role did IMINT play in this operation? IMINT had some uses, but, you know, a lot of the same things that we tend to run into in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, they ran into there where an insurgent can hide amongst the populace. They're using like literally like caves to hide in. Um, so on the insurgency side, imagery intelligence didn't play a huge role. There was some involvement by 
uh, English Electric Canberra PR9 uh, reconnaissance aircraft, which uh, it's kind of, you know, sort of similar to how we outfitted certain models of B-17 during the uh, Second World War as photo reconnaissance Mm. uh, aircraft. They had this bomber, the English Electric Canberra, that they produced an actual model that was a photo reconnaissance, PR-9, model of the aircraft. And so what they primarily used that for was photo reconnaissance over South Yemen to kind of trying to figure out what the Yemeni military was doing as far as supporting the rebels. Um, And then there was some other strategic intelligence that they did with those uh, as far as uh, the Saudis and the Emiratis and some of the other stuff that was going on elsewhere in the region. But as far as the, you know, the actual insurgency, it played a really kind of a uh, really minimal minimal role. And I imagine SIGINT falls into somewhat the same idea. These are not uh, technologically advanced insurgents. They're not running around with encrypted radios. They're yeah, not exactly. necessarily, you know, the higher tech really may not work as well here because there just isn't anything to collect. Yeah, that's absolutely the case. They, uh, we know for a fact, um, and and you know, it's worth pointing out here, and we'll probably get into this uh, sh- shortly. That uh, there was a high degree of operational security on the British side, so there's a lot of these records that um, have not made it out really into the public sphere yet. Some of them are available at the National Archives in in London. Um, but as far as you know, easily digestible resources, they're few and far between. We do have um, available online uh, the medal citations for some of the SAS troops who served in uh, a particular battle that I suspect we'll probably mention at least uh, at some point called the Battle of Murbat. But in these medal citations, um, it talks about intercepted radio transmissions. But... Uh, prior to a certain point, I want to say it was 71 or 72, most of the ADU didn't have radios, so there really wasn't anything to pick up. Um, my presumption is that as the war went on, there was more uh, saturation of listening devices on the part of, of the Sultan's armed forces, um, but you know, probably still fairly limited to pretty low-level tactical chatter as opposed to really valuable intelligence. Right. So it really pulls it all down to human as the the primary it source yeah. of intelligence here um and, and you know and it's very difficult to do any kind of coin campaign especially for focusing on on the population um and conventional operations and you've already talked about this idea that defectors mm-hmm. were one of the key resources key collection resources for the the british and the omanis and really doubly so they played a, a dual role because obviously they knew what they had been up to when they were serving with the adu so they could come over and say well, this operation's being planned, or you know, this is where this particular leader, or this particular you know, band of guerrillas is is located. Um, but then the SAS in their uh, campaign, their you know, Operation Storm, their piece of the the whole picture, they really took it a step further because those Adu came over and defected. They were recruited into what were called the Furcat, which is. That's the plural form, and an individual group of these uh, militia was the Furka. But these Furka militias would then um, help with the capture of a particular piece of real estate. It would be secured. They bring in a, uh, a prefabricated, essentially a prefabricated village, a mosque, a, a clinic, a school, 
um, you know, three or four different buildings right there. And then they drill a well. That was huge because of the cattle and because, mm. you know, during large parts of the year, the the area of Dofar is very dry. Um, and then as people came to use these resources, pray at the mosques, send their kids to school, then these defected uh, Furcat uh, folks would be used to collect intelligence from the local populace. So not only were they bringing their own information, but they were then able to get information from the locals, uh, which was hugely effective. None of this means anything unless you can keep your own secrets. And I think that one of the, the <laughs> primary uh, success stories from this operation is the British counterintelligence. And, it, and I think that, and not just the British, the, the, the allied counterintelligence on the Omani side as well. Um, you're really, because you're, you're competing from the populace, you, you can't stop doing counterintelligence. I mean, this is a constant... This is another situation because it's a quasi-civil war where you don't necessarily have uniforms on the battlefield. Right. You don't you don't know who the good guy is and the bad guy is. And this is one of the last times, I would argue, certainly, because Vietnam changes all of this with television and everything else. One of the last times you have a major war where you can have this level of secrecy that you would never be able to do today. I mean, there's, there's no press, there's no television, there's no radio, uh, or they didn't allow press into the country while they were fighting it. Um, it really a security blackout. This is probably as good as it gets when it comes to operational security. If there's any criticism of this campaign as far as lessons for modern campaigns, this is that criticism because uh, General Tony Jeeps, who was uh, he's retired now as uh, you know SAS. I think he was a major general, um, but he was you know a colonel leading the SAS detachment at one point of this conflict, having served previously in in the conflict um he he lays it straight out and says we had a level of secrecy in that war that would probably be impossible today um they literally i i can't remember what my source is on this this may have been a, a dofar veteran that i spoke with myself but there's this story about a russian photojournalist who landed in salala which is the capital of of dofar it's kind of where all of this was centered and got off the plane, started taking a few pictures, was immediately rolled up, all of his equipment confiscated and destroyed, and he was put on the first plane back to Muscat and deported. Um, you know, it's hard to imagine that happening right. to, you know, somebody for the AP who lands in Kabul and, you know, has a camera. Well, and that, well we're embedding journalists now, so it's even yeah, more than absolutely. that. absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering about the, the, the Furcat, which you talked about. What was the fear, potentially, about double agents? People uh, pretending to defect, people who are gain, gathering information, or, or just bad OPSEC on their point. They're not necessarily going to be particularly good at maintaining secrets. I mean, was there a fear of having people who pretended to defect or just bad security overall? Absolutely. Um, this actually went back to the, the Jebel Akhtar War about a decade and a half earlier, where the uh, they literally, as they were uh, getting ready to assault the mountain, gave false information to a group of uh, goat herders so that they would go and um, you know pass this on and, and feed bad information to the enemy. So there was uh, there were accusations and and uh, suspicions that weapons that went missing had had been handed over to the Adu by uh, potential defectors and and. Uh, Certainly, there was a fear that they were either inadvertently or um, possibly deliberately passing information on to onto the bad guys. So 
the British did, you know, a number of different things. The really, the I think the most interesting is some of the deception operations that they did, which involved in some cases, you know, just planting information. They they would, you know, have chatter saying, "Oh yeah, this big operation is going to start, and we're doing this, and we're going to assault this target." And then the target was actually somewhere else on a completely different day. Um, there were several operations that were staged entirely as deceptions to draw the Adu to a particular area, and then the actual objective was assaulted. Well, you referenced a battle a little bit earlier, um, and I think it's kind of <laughs> central to this. So why don't you walk us through that a little bit? So that would be the Battle of Murbot. Uh, so Murbot is this little, I'm assuming it's a fishing village, um, I don't know if it's within sight of Salala, but it's kind of on the same little uh, stretch of coastline. And you had the so the SAS didn't operate as, hey, we're the we're the Special Air Service. They were the British Army Training Team. That was the ac- acronym. That was the euphemism. Right. So they operated as the Bat out of the Bat House uh, in Murbat. They, they missed. Like, an unbelievable opportunity to me, the Bat Cave. They, absolutely. Because there are caves. There's they, caves they, everywhere. People's hiding but anyway, everywhere in caves. Yeah, so the Bat House. So, yeah, the Bat House. And there were nine SAS troops there. There was a local um, garrison just across the, the village. And the the reports, you know, are, are different as far as how many Adu attacked. But the idea on the part of the Adu was... We are going to come, and I'll I'll just clarify at this point. Adu is Arabic for enemy. So if anybody was curious, how'd they get that name? Their actual names were the Popular Front for the Liberation of Oman and the Arabian Gulf, and then later they shortened that to the Prop Popular Front for the Liberation of Oman. But it was shortened to Adu, which is Arabic for enemy. So that the Adu idea was we will stage this massive attack. Um, like this Tet offensive style attack on this garrison in Murbat will take Murbat and basically it's game over at this point. Um, so with only a little bit of assistance from that local garrison, these nine SAS soldiers were able to fend off this attacking force of like, I think the minimum is 200 Adu foot soldiers. Um, who were coming through and and had mortars and there's just it was this massive attack against these nine guys. Uh, there was one point where you know several of these guys ran over to these old artillery pieces and were literally firing them like not even indirect fire, just firing them directly at the bad guys as they were coming. And eventually uh, they received air support in the form of strike master aircraft that were um, attacking the Adu. And the Adu happened to time this attack for when they were preparing the turnover with a different SAS squadron. So another squadron came to their defense and were able to to fight them off. But it was people um, are fond of claiming that this was like this massive turning point in the war. And really, the war was won um, by you know the SAS and the Furcot doing their piece. And then the more conventional forces um, doing all of this patrolling and, and actual kinetic attacks against Adu positions. But Murbat was a really important uh, piece of it. The, the Adu really never recovered their, their bravado after that. Well, and how much impact did it have on the hearts and minds of the, the Omani people seeing that these nine British guys 
were willing to fight off hundreds of the Adu for their cause. Absolutely. You know, just I it's tough to quantify right, yeah. the impact of that, but it's also tough to downplay it. Right. I mean, that's that's really a huge victory for them. Not only the fact that they were willing to, you know, essentially fight for their lives, but but for this cause instead of running away, but also that, you know, these guys proved so much more formidable than this force that was supposedly trying to take over this entire governorate. Yeah, if you're picking a side, you go yeah. with the nine guys yeah, that exactly. just beat the living bejesus out of the 200 guys. Those yeah. are the ones that you want to be on their team. Absolutely. And, and it, what point does this war peter out? And, and does it does it peter out because they kill all the Adu? How, how do they end up, How do, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, yeah. Vietnam, we fought them, we won every battle, we lose the war. Sounds like we're winning every battle here. How does the war end? How do you finally get the Adu? You, I'm sorry. How do the British and the Iran? <laughs> it's your fault. How do you finally get? I was I was born years yes. after this thing took place. But how, how do they finally get the Adu to quit? You know, it really, it really. That's a fantastic question, and it goes to the heart of it. It really was a hearts and minds campaign because it wasn't all about killing the bad guys. It was about convincing both the bad guys and the local population hey you're going to be better off with us let's all come together and so you know that's one of the things that Ian Gardner says in his book um, is that really the Adu won too because they wanted change they were very um, you know very dis, uh, disaffected by the previous Sultan's rule and and you know that's an element to, worth pointing out that uh the Dofar Rebellion really heated up um, right when there was a change of administration in in uh, Oman. And so you had this new young sultan that came in. He had um, bona fides as a Dofari because his mother was from Dofar. Um, he, you know, wasn't guilty of all the excesses that his... Excesses might be the right the wrong word to use, but the, the uh, disputes that they had with his father, the prior sultan... Uh, those weren't laid on his shoulders. And so he had this very brief op- opportunity to um, to really change the game. And with the help of the British, he did. And that that was the campaign was, we are doing all of this civil development because we know it's overdue and we have the resources now to do it with the uh, discovery of oil. Uh, come help us. Come be a part of the solution. And, you know, I don't know that that translates directly to what we saw in Iraq and Afghanistan, but I think certainly for future conflicts and potentially even for, you know, continuing conflicts that we're in, that's a good object lesson in in how to build consensus. And that's really what won the war. Well, Tom Orderman is a risk management specialist working both in uh, kinetic operations, uh, and now in cyber operations. Uh, you can read several of his articles in Small Wars Journal. Uh, that's a really cool online site that, that kind of dives into these issues much deeper than we can here today. Tom, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thanks so much for having me, Vince. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTLSpyCast. 
That's I-N-T-L SpyCast. Talk to you next week. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. Thank you.